Cause we got the alternative energy right. On a nuclear free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network This week on the Radioactive Show Guam has always been a big target being attacked on the same day as Pearl Harbor, as I mentioned, but also recently, you know, North Korea named Guam as where they're pointing their missiles. When you have no choice, when you're not at the table, when these decisions are being made, you're not really considered. Your needs and what's best for you and your land are not a priority. Today, a lot of our efforts have been to just decolonize the minds of our people so that we can imagine a better future for our island. Today, you'll be listening to the first in a two-part series on military expansion in Asia, the Pacific and Australia. In this first installation, Victoria Lola Leon Guerrero, an inspiring Indigenous peace activist from the Pacific island colony Guam, speaks about her first-hand experience of colonialism. She talks about the history of Guam, as well as the current developments of Guam becoming an even larger US military base. Today, a shocking third of the island is used for U.S. military purposes. This expansion is opposed by the local Chamaros people who've been resisting for a number of years. Victoria Lola, a Chamaros woman herself, testified on behalf of her people to the UN Decolonization Committee in 2006. We don't often hear about what's going on in the Pacific Islands, nor do we Australians know much about it despite being quite geographically close. The Pacific Islands have a fascinating culture and unfortunately quite a horrendous history as the subject of colonisation. There are between 20,000 to 30,000 islands in the Pacific alone. While each island may seem lone in the great spans of ocean, they're deeply connected by century-old trade routes, language exchanges and many kilometres of ocean space where locals have fished for thousands of years. Colonisers of the Pacific have often made Pacific Islanders feel belittled due to the small size they take up in the ocean. In 93, a Pacific Islander from Fiji, Epeli Hau-Ofa, wrote an inspiring essay titled Our Sea of Islands. In this essay, he states passionately that there is a world of difference between viewing the Pacific as islands in a far sea and as a sea of islands. He asserts that it wasn't until colonisers began occupying the Pacific Islands and forcing their languages onto local peoples did Indigenous people start thinking of themselves as just small entities in a large sea. The Pacific Islands are often considered small and insignificant, partly due to their isolation from key economic zones in the world, as well as them simply having smaller land masses compared to their neighbours. But as Victoria Lola Leon Guerrero, a Chamaros woman who will be speaking on this week's show, reminds us, the idea of decolonising the minds of colonised peoples like the Chamaros people is very strong and alive. As part of a speaking tour by the name Opposing America's Pacific Push, Victoria Lola gives an eloquent speech on her island's history, first contextualising for us the impact colonialism has had on her people, and then telling the story of America's military presence on her island home and the resistance by her people. Uh, half a day that is hello in our language, Chamorro. Saina uh, Maasi, thank you so much for having me here to share a little bit of our story with you. You know, Guam is often 
uh, misnamed uh, in every reference that is made to it outside of the island. Thank you for calling us Guahan. Guahan is our indigenous name, which means we have, and it's important to recognize before I talk about a lot of the, about a lot that has been taken away from us that we do have a lot. We have a very beautiful and strong um, and deeply spiritual culture and people. And despite colonization, we continue to maintain a genuine uh, spirit about us. We're most known for how hospitable we are as a people. And in some ways, as I'll share, almost to our demise, we've welcomed people um, despite the horrendous things they've done to our island. In America itself, Guam is very invisible uh, in the imaginations of the American people. It's some place that's really far away where there's military bases, and that's about it. The people are often last <laughs> in the thoughts of uh, Americans, uh, especially in that we are a unique, uh, thriving Chamorro people with our own culture and our own history. One of the metaphors that I actually was just sharing with Bruce today that um, would be a good way to sort of explain our relationship with the United States is uh, an Air Force officer was being interviewed about uh, when the early announcements of the military buildup occurred about Guam and how the people on Guam might feel about the movement of the Marines. And he said, well, you know, you have to think about Guam as, as this, and he lifts up his coffee cup. It's exactly like this cup. It can ask me not to pour hot coffee in it, but I own it, and that's what it's for, so that's what I'm going to do for, after all, it is my cup. Guam is an unincorporated territory, which in every sense of the word means that we belong to the United States, but we are not part of the United States. The fourth committee of the United Nations, the Special Political and Decolonization Committee, still lists Guam as one of the 17 remaining colonies <coughs> in the world. So uh, despite as much uh, you know, proclamation in the world of America being democratic, it still colonizes uh, the people of Guam and the island of Guam. And what this has meant for our people is that they occupy currently a third of the island, and that basically they use the island mostly for their military and that they pretty much get away with everything that they've done as a result. I've learned in my brief time here in Australia that a lot of people in Australia know very little about Guam, so um, let me give a little bit of context. Uh, Guam's first uh, occupier were the Spanish. Magellan arrived in Guam in 1521 and kind of started, uh, set the stage for uh, our long-standing uh, colonization. Um, but before then, and for a very long time, for 3,500 years, in fact, uh, our ancestors had a very thriving and a very self-sustaining and a very beautiful um, civilization. Uh, our ancestors are dated back, obviously, 4,000 years. Had a really communal sense of governing in which uh, both the men and the women are of equal power. And in fact, actually, the women had more power because they had the final say in every decision that was made. So Guam is a very matriarchal culture. It still is today. And so that's kind of the context for our ancestors. And so when the Spanish did come, you know, the things that they saw as being uh, savage were the fact that, you know, our people were much more free. And they, they did say that women in particular held roles reserved for men in the rest of the world. And so there was uh, a desire to sort of make women invisible in the writing of our history. Um, and so when the Spanish came, the Chamorros actually fought them in a very uh, bloody war for 27 years. 
Um, and eventually the Spanish gained uh, control over Guam and ruled the island, Catholicized the island until the Spanish-American War in 1898 in which we uh, went to America. I guess you can say America became our next occupier. And then the rest of the islands around us went to Germany and eventually to Japan. Uh, but America came to Guam in 1898. A lot of people don't know that. And at that time, they kind of ran Guam like a naval ship, and the people of Guam were treated as you know, wards of the state, really, uh, with very little rights at all, uh, absolutely no representation. And you know, the, the island was run by a naval governor appointed by the president. So it was, it was really bad in terms of what it did to the people, because it's one day there's a Spanish flag goes down, next day an American flag, no say from the people at all. America knew that Japan was going to attack, uh, didn't really warn the people, kind of assured the people that you have the strongest country in the world protecting you, so you don't have to worry. But, you know, Guam was attacked on the same day as Pearl Harbor. Two days before then, the naval governor was in his office shredding documents, not informing the people to hide or warning them that war was coming to their shores. Uh, and two days after we were attacked, we were surrendered to the Japanese. The Japanese occupied the island for two and a half years. Um, and there are many different um, war crimes and atrocities that occurred during that time. You are listening to The Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Currently, we are hearing from Victoria Lola Leon Guerrero, a Chamarros woman from Guam in the Pacific. The U.S. initially used Guam as a naval base since 1898. Things changed during the Second World War, where Guam became the site of more military upheavals. America lost it to Japan and then reclaimed it towards the end of the war. The effect on Guam was devastating. Listen to Victoria Lola, an indigenous woman from Guam, tell the story of land grabs, the militarization of the island, and how radioactivity has affected her people. Robert McNamara was uh, the, the award-winning documentary Fog of War. He, I think, most accurately described why America returned to Guam said they were realizing, why are we bombing Japan from India? Let's go back to Guam. So they returned to Guam, and, you know, today it's called Liberation Day, and the people are sort of um, made to believe in the rhetoric that America came back to save the people from Japan, but that's not why they came back at all. They came back and bombed the island to shreds and basically occupied 75% of the island immediately after the war and used the island to bomb Japan, to drop all the firebombs on Japan, and some people have asked whether or not the atomic bombs were launched from Guam. They weren't, but they were launched from an island just north of us, two islands north of us, basically, called Tinian. Tinian is also part of this realignment plan. They currently want to put a firing range there for the Marines. Um, but the Enola Gay was launched from Tinian, and these other planes were launched from Guam. And basically, when America wins the war, per se, they see Guam's military um, strategic importance and really sort of solidify their presence on the island, heavily militarizing the island. Um, and obviously, you know, they were taking land at that point uh, when people weren't even citizens. Um, and so, you know, there were people even then that were, that were fighting this and saying that we need, we need equal rights. You know, if you're going to take our land, we need equal rights. And so people were fighting for at least citizenship. You know, there was a, a walkout from a sort of powerless Guam Congress that existed at that time. Um, and so it got some international attention that the U.S. in the middle of the Cold War was taking land from people who weren't citizens. And so we were given 
uh, an organic act, which is an act of Congress that sort of acts as our Constitution, but it wasn't made by anybody from Guam. No one from Guam was present when it was designed, but it basically gave us this sort of second-class citizenship in which we are U.S. citizens, we do have U.S. passports, but we don't have any representation. Uh, we don't vote for president, we have a non-voting representative in Congress. And basically, it just legitimized the land taking and the U.S.'s presence on the island, uh, again, without any consent from the people. Uh, before the war, all of, our pe all of our food was produced locally. Our people were self-sustaining. Uh, after the war, the U.S. comes in, and a lot of the farmland became the bases that exist today. There's a gigantic naval base in the south, and there's a very big Air Force base up north, um, and a naval magazine, another base that stores all of these... Um, weapons, I'm sure many nuclear weapons included. Uh, we have nuclear submarines, we have bombers based on Guam that regularly fly uh, over the island loudly, so people that live up north suffer a lot from noise pollution. And obviously, even deeper than that, we have incredibly high cancer rates, um, the highest cancer rates on the island being in the villages that border these two bases I've mentioned. Um, so it's affected the health of our people incredibly, but it's most especially affected the spirit of our people. We've become incredibly dependent on the United States. Imagine a third of your country being occupied by the military that doesn't really leave much else in the way of jobs and uh, economic possibility. We do have a tourism industry, but aside from these two things, we've really just become dependent on American goods, American imports. We're subject to what's called the Jones Act, in which all the goods that come in through the port must come from American ships and American uh, leave from American docks. So we have very expensive cost of living. It's very expensive to, to get food on Guam. And of course, our people suffer from a lot of the things that many colonized peoples suffer from, including you know diabetes, heart disease, alcoholism, drug abuse, all of the things that come with being so dependent um, on American food. And so that's kind of the context of where we're at. You are currently listening to Victoria Lola Leon Guerrero, a Chamarras woman from Guam in the Pacific, speaking about the increasing militarization of Guam, including the U.S.'s push to have military bases on sacred sites and the resistance from indigenous peoples of Guam. Guam is one of 30,000 islands in the Pacific, but although it is small and largely used for the U.S. military bases, resistance is strong from the Chamarros people. Victoria Lala speaks about the idea of decolonizing the mind. This idea came about in the 80s when several authors with connections to colonized places wrote passionately about indigenous peoples reclaiming their languages over the colonizers' language. In 1986, Ngugi Wathyongo, a Kenyan writer, wrote a groundbreaking book by this name, Decolonizing the Mind. At the time, many African authors were writing in Spanish, Portuguese and French rather than their indigenous tongues. Wathyongo wrote the book out of a deep concern for the state of indigenous languages in Africa and began to write fiction in his own indigenous language, Gikuyu, and encouraged his African writer friends to do the same. A few years later, in 93, a Pacific Islander from Fiji, Epeli Haofa, wrote an essay referencing Wathyongo's Decolonizing the Mind. His essay, Our Sea of Islands, states passionately that there's a world of difference between viewing the Pacific as just islands in a far sea and as a sea of islands. Thinking of the Pacific Islands as a sea of islands includes the oceans as their landmass and makes them seem much larger and stronger. Epeli Hoofa in Our Sea of Islands also reminds Pacific Islanders, people of colonised places, that they have a long history of trade and exchanging languages and 
moving between the islands and that they are very connected and should work together against their colonisers. The idea of decolonizing the minds of colonised peoples is very strong in Guam. Victoria Lola Leon Guerrero speaks about what it's like for her island home to be a target of war, with a third of Guam functioning as a naval base, and how the people of Guam are working towards decolonizing their minds. About 2003, I was actually in college in San Francisco, and I, a friend of mine said, Guam is in the newspaper, and she gives me the New York Times, and on page A14 of the New York Times, it says, U.S. looks for friendly base abroad, realizes it already has one. And so I read the article, and of course, there's not a single local person, not even the governor, quoted. There's an admiral that says Guam is formerly known as the trailer park of the Pacific and is now going to be um, blessed with uh, this opportunity to become this even bigger base. And it has a picture of a open airstrip from Anderson Air Force Base that says there's lots of parking around here. And... The article just doesn't even feature the fact that there is um, that there are even local people, period. But it was kind of the announcement, the beginnings of a public announcement of the Marines coming to Guam. About 2006, they really began the process of, um, you know, formalizing in the community the fact that they wanted to base the Marines from Okinawa to Guam. Um, we had Marines after the war, um, but there aren't Marines on Guam now, and obviously there are legitimate concerns about the Marines in Okinawa and the reasons the Okinawans don't want the Marines there are reasons for us not to want the Marines on Guam. So a lot of people were very upset initially on on that note. But as plans began to be released and we realized um, in at the end of 2009, they released what's called a draft environmental impact statement. And it's the first time that they really sort of clearly stated what they wanted to do for, to the island. And basically, all the concerns that people had raised uh, were ignored. One of the biggest concerns was that we didn't want them to take any more land. Well, when they released the DEIS, that's what it's called, um, or abbreviated into, we real- they said that they wanted to take more land, and not just any piece of land. They wanted to take a very significant ancestral site in which um, there are remains of our ancestors and the, the um, artifacts of an ancient village. Uh, and it's one of the few ancient villages that we still have access to because a lot of our ancestral sites are actually on the bases and we cannot access them. And so um, it's a very sacred site for our people. And so they wanted to turn it into a firing range, which in every sense of the word is very offensive because one of the ways that we respect our ancestors today because we believe that their spirits are still in these spaces is that we ask permission before we enter a space like this and we're very quiet. So firing machine guns in an ancestral site is incredibly disrespectful to our people. People were upset about this particular land being taken. Environmental impact statement was released. It said we can expect as many as 80,000 more people on our island. Already our infrastructure struggles to meet the needs of the population that's there. There's only about 160,000 people on Guam. So 80,000 more people is an absurd amount for our um, struggling government to handle. Um, And there was no commitment whatsoever from the federal government to fund any kind of infrastructural upgrades. And there still hasn't been, and that's one of the biggest contentions, is that Congress, when they're looking at what to cut in the budget for this realignment, the first thing is the needs of the people of Guam. And so... There, were, there was a lot of public um, dissent about this, and, you know, because we are a colony, there isn't 
any room for us to negotiate what's happening. It's kind of just like, well, you can leave comments about what you think, but there's no obligation for the United States to answer any of these concerns because, you know, despite 10,323 comments uh, of concern, when they released their record of decision, these are all their jargon, but they the record of decision was kind of what they came to after they had the people's comments on the environmental impact statement. They still had plans to do everything that they said that they were going to do, including taking Pogget, this ancient village, for a firing range. And so what it sparked is, uh, is actually somewhat of a victory for us. There were some young lawyers in Guam as part of an organization called We Are Guahan, um, the Guam Preservation Trust, and uh, the the, there was an environmental firm based out of San Francisco that teamed up and sued the Department of Defense, um, basically saying that they violated their own process, which is that in order for them to identify a piece of land for something like a firing range, they need to consider all alternatives, which they didn't do. And so uh, they would have lost the lawsuit, but before a decision could be made, they decided to go back to the table and sort of uh, do another environmental impact statement to consider these alternatives. So right now, they're doing what's called a supplemental environmental impact statement, which means that um, we've delayed the buildup at least two years uh, because they have to go through the whole process, which includes public commenting and things like that. The lands that they're considering as alternatives are sacred lands that are on the bases, so it creates kind of um, what's the best of two evils kind of thing. And so a lot of the community is still not satisfied, and, and ultimately they'll probably still take the land that they want to take, but we're going to fight them at um, all costs. So that's kind of where we're at. You are listening to The Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. You're currently listening to Victoria Lola speak about her first-hand experience of colonialism and the expansion of the U.S.'s military base on her Pacific Island home. The Pacific Islands are often considered small and insignificant, partly due to their isolation from key economic zones in the world, as well as them simply having smaller land masses compared to their neighbours. But as Victoria Lola reminds us, these islands have great cultural riches, and she speaks to the idea of decolonizing the mind. You know, this is not in any way to protect or defend against anybody. It's really the U.S.'s desires to, to take over our region for their own interests, which means that for all of us, we are being put, as always, in the middle of, of ultimately a war in which we will be big targets. Guam has always been a big target um, being attacked on the same day as Pearl Harbor, as I mentioned, but also recently, you know, North Korea named Guam as where they're pointing their missiles. A lot of people were very upset. I wasn't really surprised because when you have that much military and you're such a small place, it's very easy to become a big target. For our people, what's um, at heart of the issue is the fact that despite all of this, we've had no choice. And when you have no choice, when you're not at the table, when these decisions are being made, you're not really considered. Your needs and what's best for you and your land are not a priority. And so um, we've been working a lot to um, push for the need for our island to exercise our longstanding uh, and denied human right to self-determination. Nobody's really funded an education campaign to prepare the community to be able to change our political relationship. And so a lot of our efforts have been to really educate the community about the need for a self-determination plebiscite and to pressure the government to really try to put some funding towards making it happen. And, you know, even more um, 
important than that is to kind of break in our people's uh, minds this, this feeling that we need the United States to survive. As you can imagine, a place that has been colonized for this long struggles to um, find the confidence that we need to realize that we can do it on our own. That, as I mentioned, for 3,500 years, we had a thriving civilization. We were a very happy and, and um, successful people in taking care of ourselves. And so today, a lot of our efforts have been to just decolonize the minds of our people so that we can imagine a better future for our island that doesn't have to involve war. Um, people always say, well, if the U.S. isn't there, what will Guam do? Our own people say that, right? Um, well, there's many opportunities when, when you think about it. You know, Guam doesn't have to be a strategic place in the world for, you know, transporting weapons and troops. It can really be a great place in the world where we can trade and we can supply food to our region in new ways. I mean, that's what we've always done is our islands have always had a very good trading system. Um, and so, you know, there are many other things if we just kind of open up our minds and see that we don't have to use these islands for war, that we can really work together to take care of each other and to be prosperous together in new ways. And if we work together, I think that could be very possible. You know, the Pacific is a beautiful place, and oftentimes because our islands are tiny, we're seen as insignificant, but we're not. If you combine the land and the ocean, which is what we've always used, we're actually very, a very big part of the globe. We also need to fight the U.S. military presence throughout the Pacific. When Okinawa, Okinawa rightfully um, deserves for the Marines to be taken away from their island, but Guam doesn't need them either. And when Australia doesn't want the Marines, we don't need the Marines, and we don't want the Marines, we can't push them to Australia. We really should encourage the U.S. to bring their troops home. You know, this, this is something that... Uh, I feel very passionately about, but I think that our peoples have really been connected on, in so many ways, and I don't want to just look at the connections through our colonial history, but more through our ways of using the ocean to navigate. And so let's kind of navigate into a more peaceful and beautiful future. You've been listening to The Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. My name's Anya, and I've been chatting about an Isle of Hope somewhere in the Pacific as part of a series of shows on America's push for militarisation in Asia, the Pacific and Australia. Big thanks to Lords from Accent of Women for recording the speech, as well as Gem and Louise for your insights. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show, and feel free to shoot us an email at radioactiveshow .3cr at gmail.com Music from this week came from band Monster Rally with the song Island on Fire and the beginning track were Chamaros People Chanting I'll leave you now to listen to a Rapanoi or Easter Island song by band name Matatoa with the track Mana Maohi which means strong people Mana,
Baikal.